New ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is David Schweidel. David is the Rebecca Cheney McGreevy Endowed Chair and Professor of Marketing at Emory University's Guazetta Business School. He's an expert in the areas of customer relationship management and social media analytics. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot for having me. At the heart of marketing, at the heart of today's economy is attention from what stops the scroll to what keeps you watching or reading for hours, remembering a brand, buying a product. It all starts with attention. And for marketers, the flow and sustainability of attention once you've stopped scrolling, which is why I'm really looking forward to our discussion about your research into what holds attention. First, I really want to make it clear that we're not talking about attracting attention and we're not talking about liking or sharing, but rather sustaining attention. And I want to clarify why you isolate sustained attention and do they work differently just to set the stage? That's a great question. And you know, when we first started this project, one of the things we were looking at was how does this stack up to what we already know? One of my co-authors on this project, Jonah Berger, has done a lot of research around what goes viral. And that was kind of a starting point for us of, well, we know what people choose to share. And if you look at, for example, news consumption, we're, what we're now seeing is that the majority of where people get their information tends to be on these social media platforms. But what intrigued me back when Jonah was doing some of his earlier work was I had partnered with a news organization. So I looked at what stories were getting shared versus mm -hmm. what stories were people actually spending time reading on the news organization's website. And they're not the same set of stories at all. And so what we had found was, yes, we can look at those factors that get people to click on things, get them to share things and the clickbait and all of that. But if your intent is to actually convey information to people, mm. it's not just a matter of getting them hooked, getting them to click on something. It also has to be what's going to keep them beyond the subject line. What's going to get them through that first paragraph? What's going to get them to the end of that story? And what we had realized was that hadn't really been looked at much in the research, especially in light of how much things have shifted to the digital domain. That's so interesting. And I, I think about that a little bit in context of when I had my agency and we used to explain to people that a trailer or a promo, which is, is getting people to think, oh, I might want to see that film is different from the film itself. And often why you don't want the director of the film to be directing the promo because they're different. They serve a different purpose. And so getting people to stop, that's one thing. Once they're in it, keeping them there, something else. And we're talking about the once they're in it, how do you keep the person? How do you get them to make stay long enough so that they hear and process the information you're sharing with them? Next, did you study this for all types of attention or was it really only text-based? So in this particular research, it was really text-based attention. But I would I, I, I would venture that for other forms of attention, whether it's audio or visual, the, we may not get the exact same set of findings, but the same processes are going to be in play. Again, you know, what has stopping power versus what hooks someone enough to get them to 
devote enough attention for you to digest it. Those may be two different processes that are in play. Right. So, but if you were making an educated guess, do you think that somebody listening to this who works in a video medium or an audio medium could apply the learnings around language to their work? Well, I think I think a lot of it is going to carry over. Okay. I would, my suggestion for somebody working in video or work, working from an audio standpoint is the text is part of it, right? You know, right. The words you're saying, the language that you're using is part of it. Part of what fascinates me around language is area that we're starting to do more work in are the non-textual elements that oh. I think need to receive equal attention. Right. Fascinating. Now, there were some experiments around people sustain, you know, how they felt about reading, but you didn't feel that those previous experiments were quite on point. And can you just explain why? Yeah. So if we think about the the work that's been done previously, again, one of it is the outcomes that people had chosen to focus on. Another was kind of the way in which kind of the language constructs were designed. And so what we really want to do is bring what we currently know around around language, around what elements of language affect people's attention. And part and part of that's going to be similar to what grabs them in the first place. But with the, the new text analytic methods that are now more readily available to us, we wanted to bring that in and see if we were to manipulate the language itself that was used in those experiments, what kind of impact would that have? So some of the studies, we manipulated the language in the article. In other studies that we had done, we manipulated kind of how people felt before they started reading the articles. And then, you know, besides the experimental studies that we had conducted, we also had large scale field data that we were able to analyze. And in all of these cases, we got a consistent set of results around what's driving people's attention. Well, and also something that you you mentioned is that, and people should be aware, is that you you did this in such a way as it reflected real consumer behavior. It wasn't people in a room forced to read something, which nobody in reality is for. The whole point is that you're not forced to read it. And so That's right. it was it was a realistic, it was either dealing with real data, this data that you had of real consumers consuming things, or that you allowed it to flow the way a consumer does behave. Your research looked at two factors in language, processing ease and emotionality. First, what does processing ease mean? So it used to be the case that Microsoft Word, if you looked at kind of like your word count type measures, would report back to you kind of like a grade level for reading. Essentially, how sophisticated is the language, is the sentence structure that you're using? So how you know, is it basically written for a third grader or is it written for a college student? And what we typically find is the simpler you make it, the the syntactical structure, the words that you're using, the easier you make it for people to read, the longer they they spend reading. Okay. So in a way, if you think about it, it's like friction, right? Reduce the friction. Okay. One of the things though, that's, it's, and I, I don't know, maybe I'm mixing mixing elements here, but sometimes people talk about, you know, people like games, people like things that are clever, make it kind of confusing and they'll try to figure it out. So if your headline is, you know, the thing in your house that will kill you, I guess that's a simple structure, but it forces the reader to think a little bit. So is it purely just the language is simple, even if the idea conveyed might require some thought? That That's exactly it. And you know, we focused on emotionality and processing ease, but what's also in, in the work is 
the substantive content. And so we have stories that are about technology. We have stories that are about financial markets, that are about politics. And then we have some that are kind of more everyday life, the types of articles that might look more like a blog post. And even after you control for the subject matter, Mm. the way in which you write, those processing ease measures still matter. So take, you know, it, it's so you can to, make a dry topic interesting is sort of it, the, exactly the point. Okay. So you can make the insurance conversation. It may not be the Royals, but people will sustain the reading because you've made it such that they, they are willing to sustain. Why, why is it that people, the ease of understanding generates a positive effect? Is it simply ease? It must be more than simply ease. So is there something about that that makes people like it? Well, I think I don't think it's just ease. Some of the other measures that we found that kind of had similar effect were kind of the familiarity of language and how concrete versus how abstract you make it. So more familiar language, more concrete language also increases people's reading. So I think it's, you know, I I love the word that you used before, friction. It's, are you making it harder than it needs to be for people to read? Interesting. If you are, you're going to lose them. So an example would be rather than saying product, you say phone or you make it you make it so that the person almost has a mental picture of what it is is is, is easily exactly. Or if we're talking about like financial markets, there are people who do a great job of distilling really sophisticated concepts and putting it in everyday terms that people can relate to. Right. Fantastic. Okay. next emotional language. Now, are, are these actually emotionally loaded words or is this when the words are put together they create an emotional feeling you know for sale one pair of baby shoes never been worn none of those words are emotional but the compound the, the composition right and can so, say something so is it both is it one or the other what does it mean we we looked at both when we analyzed kind of the large scale data those are emotionally laden words okay it, in some of the lab studies where we prime people with an emotion, okay. and again, we found consistent results across the different the different analyses that we had done. Okay, okay, all right. So when talking about emotion, it didn't just work in a, on its own, but you tied it to uncertainty or arousal. Individual emotional words convey a degree of certainty or uncertainty. Oh yeah. So. Not all emotions are created equal in terms of sustained attention. So when parsing which emotions to tap into, there was a a component which had to do with arousal and there was a component which had to do with uncertainty. Can you explain that a little bit? There's some types of emotions that are going to be more arousing compared to others. There are some types of emotions that are going to evoke more uncertainty compared to others. And it's different from just looking at emotions as good or bad, positive or negative emotions. So to give you you specific examples, anger is a high arousal emotion. Sadness is a low arousal emotion, even though both of them are negative emotions. Anxiety is a negative emotion that's linked with both higher levels of uncertainty and higher levels of arousal. So in that, so anxiety would be more compelling than anger. 
because yes. okay so there's a hierarchy you know let's just so if you well, if, have, if you were trying to construct an article and you wanted to write it in such a way of what's that hierarchy of what's going to get people to keep on going anger will get them to keep going but in, inducing anxiety is going to be leaps and bounds more impactful S using sadness a low aroused emotion is actually going to work against you which is fascinating. I think it's fascinating, but I also think it's slightly terrifying given the world that we live in and given the, the reliance on platforms that are choosing the content they put in front of us. Well, sure. And one of the things that I found interesting when we think about anger, because while I was reading the paper and I thought, oh, gee, I would have thought anger was sort of like the pinnacle, because if I think about some entertainment networks where they're almost like the the outrage network, you know, where <laughs> everything is 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 angry, angry, angry. But it sounds like what you're it, maybe outrage has an element of anxiety in it. Is that what absolutely? I mean, okay. if you think about you know, how we react to anxiety and fear. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. And okay. You know, I want to, if I, it, go, it goes back to fight or flight responses in many respects. If I, if I can make you afraid, if I can make you a little bit paranoid, if I use that kind of language, it's not just that I'm making you upset and you're clenching your fists, mm -hmm. but you know, if I can trigger that response of, oh, I got to look over my shoulder, that's going to hook people even more. Right. You know, one of the things that also struck me, and I'm curious about your take on this, but it seemed that a, another way, if I'm a marketer and I'm hearing this interview and I'm thinking, okay, this hierarchy and defining what's arousing and what's, you know, is it almost has to do with when in time things take place. Because if we think about hope and anxiety are, have high, uh, high levels of engagement. And those are sort of future-based things. And anger and happiness are almost current. So they have some engagement, but not as mm -hmm. much. And then if we think about sadness and contentment, this is based on things that have already passed, that I as a human can't impact those things. And so if I'm thinking animalistically, I'm mm -hmm. most interested in future, like what is going to help me future, happiness, future, fear, future, or right now is a little less, but it's, I'm in it, I'm in the mix of it, but past stuff is less. I mean, is that a fair way to think about it or am I missing? You know, I hadn't considered kind of that temporal framing, but I, it, it would track with kind of the directionality of things. Because if I think about hope as being in some respects aspirational, and, right. you know, anxiety, it's, it's not about what's happened in, in the past, in, it's what's going steps. to happen. It, it's what could happen in the future. And that's where perhaps that uncertainty dimension is coming into play. If I'm if I'm focused on something in the past, there's not a whole lot of uncertainty because it's done. It's done. Right. Well, this is why I, as I was reading it and I was reading some of the the ways in which the language was, was shifted around. You took a financial. There was a sentence regarding financial markets and some of the words that were used, you know, tracked with with these different, you know, anxious, angry, sad, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I thought the the nuance in the change of the words changed where in time the reader was going to be thinking. That's what I, that's yeah, so for me, it's very temporal. I, I, can, I can definitely see that. I said we hadn't focused on kind of that temporal element in what we were manipulating in our studies, but I think it definitely kind of lines up with especially that uncertainty dimension.
Right, right. I also wondered when you were testing this, how granular it went. Again, if I'm a writer, if I'm an editor, do I need to make every sentence this way? Or is it paragraph? If I think about sustaining an arc of emotion, do I, how much room do I have to do that arc? So in our study, we went paragraph by paragraph. That okay. was how we, so that was kind of the, the level of granularity that we were able to get in our data mm-hmm, was, mm-hmm. Do, do you go past the current paragraph when you're scrolling? So that was, but I think you're right in that idea of the arc of the writing, kind of that emotional journey that mm. you're taking people on. We did take a look at how much the past had mattered in terms of your current paragraph. Like, did the last paragraph matter? Did all the paragraphs that you read currently matter. It did not change the findings that we had when we included those trajectories. Oh, that's interesting. So they have to be good enough to keep you around, but you can intensify to keep them going in a way. Right. And it's like, once I get to the middle of the story, it's the quality, it's the emotionality of where I currently am. But you've got to be doing enough to kind of be pushing people along the entire time. Right. I want to circle back on onto arousal just to make sure people understand what that means. Now, is that around the particular valence of of language? How, can you just give a little bit more so there's been practical some, Sure. You know, the notion of arousal has been looked at before, both positive and negative. Hmm. Think of it as kind of what gets your heart rate going potentially. Right. Right. Okay. Um, whether it's for good or for bad, what gets your heart rate going? In our case, again, the the, the text analytic literature around negative emotions is just much more developed, and so we had focused on a specific set of emo- of negative emotions: anger, anxiety, and sadness. And so we were just looking at the arousal when incorporated through those negative emotions. Okay. One of the things I have read in studies, and admittedly, this is a Netflix study on thumbnails. So it's a bit of a reach. I'll be very honest with a bit of a reach here. When you say, you're talking about the image thumbnail. The image thumbnail. So this is is not text-based, but negative or a scary image that or an unpleasant image tends to grab people a little bit more than a positive one. And I always think of that as developmentally, we are animals of half empty nature like that. That tiger was here before, so I'm going to pay attention to it. So negative things tend to tweak us faster. Is that, first of all, is that true? And secondly, do you think that if if we're talking emotion, negative versus positive, negative does tend to grab people a bit more? I yeah. so I don't I'm not familiar with the Netflix study, but it's tapping into the same kind of base construct, base reactions that we have. You know, again, way back in our reptile brain of I have to process information very quickly, so right. I have to I have to be able to form these snap judgments, and my physiologically. I am going to have a reaction to that. Right. So what you're saying about kind of the negative image, kind of that jarring image, Mm -hmm. physiologically, we should have a response to that because that's how we would know I'm I'm potentially in danger and I need to react. Right. And so so the next question, and maybe this wasn't an aspect of what you looked at, but if I'm writing and it's text-based, do you know, high anxiety versus high hope, which one would perform better? 
Yeah, again, we didn't have we didn't okay. have hope in our particular study. Okay. Um, if I had to venture a guess, though, because po- we did find positive emotions did work. Okay. Not as okay. much as anxiety, but we didn't parse out those positive dimensions. So I would not be surprised if we found that kind of the positive flavor of anxiety working nearly if just as well as anxiety. Well, I'm thinking actually very specifically in terms of political campaigning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, if you have only so much time to try to get people to understand your relatively complex message, should it be I'm hoping towards the future or should I be I'm anxious about the future, which is going to get people. Yeah. And this is where I, where I get worried about the research overall, because right. again, what, what we what we know is that negative messaging works. Right. Right. And I've done I've done research in politics and we consistently see the negative messaging working. Right. Um, And we don't enjoy it, but it works. Correct. And so people people do it. Now, if someone's listening to this, they might say, yeah, well, but what's the article about? Where are they reading it? How well was it written? Did it conform to their belief system already? Did you control for those things? You touched on we, a little bit earlier, but I just want to clarify. Sure, we did. When, so when we had done our large scale study with field data, I want to say we had nine different websites, some major outlets like national, international distribution, some more locally oriented, some were specialized outlets like finance or technology. Some are going to be more general news outlets. Okay. Um, but to be to be fair, of you know those questions like, well, did it conform to their belief system? Is there self selection going on in terms of what people are reading? Mm. Absolutely, could have been the case, and that was part of why I said, you know what, what we're finding in the field data is compelling and interesting, but we can't say this is causing behavior, and so that's why we had complemented okay. that analysis with studies in the lab, and it was consistent. So yes, all across all, I, th- I believe all three of the studies that we had done, the field data, the manipulation of emotion in the text and the manipulation of emotions before they started reading all yielded consistent results. Would you say that this would hold for advertisements and articles alike? Sometimes, you know, longer messaging versus shorter messaging. Does it, is it different? You know, I think it depends on the, on the kind of, content that's being produced. You know, I'm doing some work with a group on brand storytelling and that's longer form messaging. I mean, at the end of the day, it's still a marketing message, but it's longer form. In other cases, like what Netflix is doing with the thumbnails or it's the stopping power as you're going through that infinite scroll. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's why I think is that we've got to understand both aspects of what, not only what grabs people in the first place, because if all I need you to do is click on something, I'm going to focus on what grabs you. But if I'm going to look at moving you through kind of that purchase funnel, that's where I've got to hold on and sustain that attention. Well, right. I guess what I'm thinking is I've clicked on it, but it's still 30 seconds long, you know, and I've got to stay there or I've got to read like this is an ad. So there's something. So it's they've grabbed me enough to stop me from scrolling, but they don't need to sustain me for yonks. You know, it's just a little message. Does that, do the things I need to think about as a marketer during this little message, do I need to think more about the stop the scroll elements or do I need to think more about these larger sustain elements or is it some sort of blend? I think it's going to be a blend. Yeah, there was a study I had seen years ago where they looked at how long people actually, you know, pay attention to video posts online. 
And it's something like you lose like 50% of your audience in the first three seconds. <laughs> so you better get your message up fast. So, so there's no question that you have to pay attention to how do I get them? But right. then there's that question of, okay, well, what's in the rest of it that are people going to make it through? And at what point kind of, if you say, all right, there's this 30 second message. Well, at what point do I kind of reach maximum impact of the message? Right. So I, that's why I say I think it's a blend. You've got to get them to stop because, look, marketers are we're always competing for eyeballs, whether it's TV, on the computer, or on the mobile device. You've got to stop them in the first place. Otherwise, you don't have an audience. Or you, otherwise, it doesn't matter how great the article exactly. is. Exactly. You could have the best content in the world. If nobody is ever exposed to it, it doesn't matter. So right. you've, got to, you've got to have stopping power. But once you stop them, you've got to be able to convince them enough to take your desired action. And in some cases, it's kind of impulse purchase. You don't need a lot of deeper level of processing, but for other product categories, you know, other services, you may need to get more of that message across for people to really understand what the appeal is. Right. Okay. So lastly, the big takeaway or takeaways, if you're writing articles or creating content, what do you absolutely need to keep in mind? (laughs) <laughs> you know, so for our attention, know, like, for let, our let attention deficit it. people, you know, who are going to have to then fold this into their thinking, give direction to their teams. Well, and we can have a whole separate conversation around generative. And oh, how- gosh, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. <laughs> but no, I, you know, I'm also trying to distill the years that we put into this project into kind of the big takeaways. I think it's emotionality and simplicity. Right? Emotionality and simplicity. And FYI, with emotionality, there's going to be some, some emotions are stronger than others, right? So yeah, it's, it's not it's not just positive versus negative. It's kind of that uncertainty and arousal element being brought into the writing. Right. So don't lean into sad. Don't lean into content. Those aren't going to get you where you need to go, I think. Exactly. Right. Well, thank you so much for your time. I am so excited that this paper is out there and everybody should sit up and take notice. Thanks a lot. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open, and of course, all of you, the members of our audience. Thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.